So, a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam, and a Christian preacher walk into a podcast. It sounds like a joke, but it's really a friendship. I'm Reverend Ellen Fowler Skidmore of Forest Lake Presbyterian Church. I am Omar Shaheen, Masjid Salam, Imam of Masjid Salam. I'm Rabbi Jonathan Case from Beshalom Synagogue. And we gather tonight for our first ever live podcast of Abraham's Table. As I told you, Dr. Walter Edgar, host of Walter Edgar's Journal on Public Radio and community leader and public servant, had agreed to moderate our panel discussion tonight. Unfortunately, he called me less than an hour ago to tell me that his wife had been taken to the hospital, that he wasn't able to moderate tonight to be with us, and so we agreed to pray for the Edgar family, and I would like to begin us tonight offering a prayer for them and for us. So please join me as I pray. O Lord our God, ruler of the universe, creator of each one of us, Look with mercy this night upon the Edgar family. We pray for your healing and your blessing, that you will guide the doctors and nurses who attend Ms. Edgar. We pray for life, for blessing, and peace for the Edgars and for all who suffer this night. We also pray for your blessing on this gathering. May what is shared and what is heard bring you glory and speak your truth. Bend down to your children and hear our prayers. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Tonight we gather in Columbia, South Carolina in the sanctuary of Forest Lake Presbyterian Church amidst a congregation of Jewish, Muslim, and Christian friends to bring you a live podcast of Abraham's Table. The three of us are committed to respectful interfaith dialogue and to hearing from those with whom we disagree. Our three religions all share Abraham as our common ancestor in the faith. And we gather tonight to try to answer questions that may help us live together in love and respect. In this way, we hope to strengthen our own community of Columbia, South Carolina, and light a path forward for all who will join us at Abraham's table. My name is Rabbi Jonathan Case from Beshalom Synagogue. Hi. So the first question that we're going to be dealing with right off the bat is what happens to non, in my instance, non-Jewish people in the eyes of God? And we're each going to handle that question in our own particular fashion. So I'm going to kick the ball by saying what, by asking again, what happens to non-Jewish people in the eyes of God, particularly in this context, Christians and Muslims? What what is our understanding of how God views them? And I've got a kind of smirk on my face right now for those who are listening to the podcast. I'm just explaining because if I really knew the answer to that question, I would be God. (laughs) You know... There's a, there's a Yiddish word which is called chutzpah, um, which roughly translates as temerity. You know, so it is temerity, in my opinion, to, to speak on behalf of God, to speak what God thinks. So, but nevertheless, it's, it is a salient, cogent question. What happens in the Jewish tradition, is our, in our opinion, 
to those people who are of non-Jewish faith. Faith is very important in our tradition. Faith in God, belief in the unity of God, belief in the fact that God is the creator, the master of the universe, and that God wants us to be good and kind and generous and loving and giving and healing of self and healing of other as well. And so, and I say that with great deliberateness because in our understanding of what God wants, our understanding is that God wants us to be kind, generous, good. God wants us to be our brother's keeper. God wants us to bring out the best in one another and the best in ourselves. So the real answer to the question is what do Jews think about people who are not Jewish is judged by what do you do, right? Are you doing things that are good, neighborly, kind, generous? Are you doing things that are respectable in terms of you see somebody on the street who's bleeding, whether they're physically bleeding or whether they're spiritually bleeding, do you kind of roll up your window and drive by quickly? And I'm using it metaphorically, of course, but I think the ultimate judge or the, our understanding of what the ultimate judge wants is that God wants us to be kind, good, and help one another, lift each other up. So the direct answer is what do we believe in terms of people who are non-Jewish? If they're good people, they're good people in the eyes of God, period. Special dispensation is given to those individuals who exhibit good behavior, not people who mouth the words of faith and then do things that are antithetical to being a good human being. Oh, you can hear me, right? Well, good afternoon and assalamu alaikum to you and to my panelists. I do have a, a foundational principle coming from the Quran that gives us some insight, informs us of how we should deal with others, my Jewish friends, my Christian friends, and others. God says in the Quran, it's a chapter, chapter 2 of the Quran, verse 62. It says, those who believe in the Quran and those who follow the Jewish scripture and the Christians and the Sabians, the Sabians, any who believe in God, Allah, and the last day and work righteousness shall have their reward with their Lord. On them shall be no fear, nor shall they grieve. So it informs us that, as you said, those who believe and work righteousness in society, we see that God has said in our holy book that God will reward them. God will judge them. So we are to work together. There's another verse I want to give uh, in the Quran. I want to just read it, if you don't mind. It says, to thee, we sent the scripture in truth, confirming the scripture that came before it, and God in it in safety. So judge between them by what Allah has revealed, and follow not vain desires, diverging from the truth that hath come to thee. To each among you, we have prescribed a law and an open way. A shira with men hajjah. A law 
each community has a law that God has revealed and also a strategy for carrying out that law. Then God says in the same verse, if God had so willed, he would have made you a single people, a single community. Now, here's the key. If God had so willed, he would have kept us with one orientation. But his plan is to test you by what he has given you. So strive, now here's the competitive part that you talked about. So strive is in a race in all virtue, all that is good, all that is just fair. The goal of you all is to God, to return to God. It is he that will show you the truth of the matter or matters in which you dispute. So I don't see an exclusive path for us. I see an inclusive path that even though we may have differences, we have to look for what we have in common and work for the betterment of society. So God will judge between us. That save us from judging between each other. So when I think about that question, what happens to non-Christians in the eyes of God? I begin where Jonathan began. I do not know and cannot say for certain. And my advice to my crew is always, if somebody tells you they know exactly the mind of God, I, I suggest you turn and run. I thought, though, it might be a good time to take head-on some of the Christian scriptures that come to our minds as Christians when we say, what happens to non-Christians? And I would begin by saying, I believe in the scriptures that guide my faith, the Christian scriptures, when they quote Jesus in John three sixteen and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. God didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's a verse that not every Christian knows. And then the other scripture that probably pops to the Christian mind when that question is asked is Jesus's quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you will know the Father, and from now on you do know him and have seen him. That's John's Gospel, the 14th chapter. And I wanted to say straight up, I believe those two scriptures. And I also believe that those two scriptures do not mean that Rabbi Case and Imam Shahid are somehow going to hell. In fact, I would say that the foes who use those two scriptures to interpret in that way are not only wrong, but they do not know the whole of scripture. I cannot read scripture and I have read it and studied it and hold that view. Christians, Jews, Muslims, believe that God revealed God's self to our collective father, Abraham. That's why the name of the podcast is Abraham's Table. We believe that God said that God would bless Abraham and all his, his descendants, making them more than the stars in the heaven or the sand on the beach, blessing the whole world through Abraham's family. That's what scripture says. That same God also told Moses in the Jewish Bible, Christian Old Testament, when Moses asked for God's name, if you remember that story, God said, my name is I will be who I will be. I am who I am. It's an emphatic form of the Hebrew verb to be that defines God as 
I would say, being itself and also defines God as undefinable. We do not define God. God defines us. We may know God, but not fully know God because God is not of human creation. We were created by God, and so God knows us fully, only. So complete knowledge of God is impossible, but that Hebrew form, I'm going to garble this here. My Hebrew is terrible. Ehye, asher, ehye. It gets translated, when it goes from the Hebrew into the Greek translations, it gets translated into the emphatic form of the Greek verb, which I'm a little more familiar with, ego eimi. So ego eimi becomes the way in which the Christian scriptures carry on that sense of God's name being, I will be who I will be. So when Jesus, then in the New Testament, says in John 14, 6, that verse I just read you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know what he uses? It's ego me. So he refers to himself in the Christian understanding, in the Gospel of John, as the same name that God gave to Moses. In Mark's Gospel, a high priest in Jerusalem asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, ego me. I am. What the scriptures Christian scriptures make very clear, and Jesus speaks to this often, what the Christian faith believes is that Jesus is an embodiment of the very God who appeared and who called Abraham, who directed Moses to go to Pharaoh. Jesus does not in any way reject God that we know through the Jewish scriptures. In fact, it's the opposite. Jesus is that same God. So in him, he says, the promises of God are fulfilled. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I came not to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. Jesus also says, all over scripture, talks about how God uses all the people in the earth. So in John 10, he says, I have other sheep. He calls himself the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, he says, I have other sheep that don't belong to this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So I would say in answer to that question, I believe in the God who for me is most clearly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ as the God who works in the world to redeem, to save, and to judge. And the only problem comes when I try to make Jesus in my own image and confuse my own purposes with God's purposes. Jesus did not come into the world to punch my ticket and to exclude Omar and Jonathan. Jesus came into the world that the world, not the parts that look like me, think like me, believe like me. Jesus came into the world so that the world might have life and have it abundantly. So that we could love God, love self, and love neighbor. And I have, in the years of growing friendship with these two, seeing the spirit of Christ reflected more clearly in Jonathan and Omar than in some Christians who believe their ticket has been punched because they chose to be baptized. And I hope that doesn't offend you by saying I see the spirit of Christ in you. <laughs> that, that's something that we identify with as, as followers of Jesus upon the peace. Also, as I said earlier in the scripture, it says the scriptures that came before, so the Torah and the angel mm-hmm. that revealed to Moses and Jesus, we find a connection there as communities. So we see God's word manifested in the life of the various communities. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing that I did put down here, can I say one more thing? Is that I do want to say, when I see how the Christian church, and this is not just in our era, but throughout the ages, has used Jesus to subjugate others. So let's think crusades. Let's think about the image of God that Omar grew up with as a Christian who was a white man with blue eyes that apparently didn't believe that people with dark skin were of equal worth. Or when I see Christians preaching anti-Semitism in Jesus' name, then I have to say that I believe that those individuals and in some cases those Christian churches have excluded themselves from God's purpose because we know what God's purpose is, and that is to bless the whole world. So scripture's full of cases in which God knows that the whole world is ruled by the creator of the universe, from the Persian king Cyrus, who's called God's anointed by the prophet Isaiah, to the Samaritan woman that Jesus greets at the well, to whom he reveals himself, again, using ego me. I do have one other thing, I know. <laughs> the Presbyterian Church has a catechism, which is a question and answer. And so I found an answer, two questions and answer that I thought might be useful, specifically in thinking about Christians, how we'd answer that question. The first question from the catechism is, will all human beings be saved? I love this answer. No one will be lost who can be saved. The limits to salvation, whatever they may be, are known only to God. Three truths above all are certain. God is a holy God who is not to be trifled with. No one will be saved except by grace alone, and no judge could possibly be more gracious than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then the other question is, how will God deal with followers of other religions? God has made salvation available to all human beings through Jesus Christ, risen and crucified. How God will deal with those who do not know or follow Christ, but who follow another tradition, we cannot finally say. We can say, however, that God is gracious and God is merciful and that God will not deal with people in any other way than we see in Jesus Christ who came as the Savior of the world. All right, I promise to stop. I I was neglectful in leaving out one thought in my first response is that the Jewish people have for millennia been called and called ourselves the chosen people. And I think, it's, I think I should spend a minute on that before we move on to the next question, for what does it mean to be the chosen people, for if it means that we are elect and therefore better than all else, that clearly put, puts us beyond the parameters of all the other faiths in the, in the world. So I want to I put this straight, put for the record, that the traditional understanding of being the chosen people is that every individual has the opportunity and the responsibility of making a choice. In other words, how does one become chosen? By choosing, by electing. I mean, if you think about the Garden of Eden for a moment and the ultimate story of the Garden of Eden, it's about humankind learning how to make choices, right choices versus wrong choices. And one becomes part of the elect or chosen people when one chooses the path of righteousness, the path of goodness, the path of godliness. So I just want to just add that I, I'm firmly convinced that we're talking about religious pluralism. We're living in a society that recognizes and respects religion, religious communities. And so what we have just said, I think we coexist with each other. 
even though we may have differences. Is that what we're saying? That's what I'm saying. Good. Thank you. Oh, you got me with the next question. It says, where have practitioners, believers, of your faith gotten it wrong? And how do you deal with that? As a follower of Imam Debbie D. Muhammad, who has passed, may God have mercy on his soul, he was the foremost leader among the Muslims in the United States. He, as our leader, he said to a congregation one time or to a, commu- to a community gathering, he wanted to spend more time making Muslims Muslims instead of trying to convert others from other religions. And I thought that was a very insightful statement that as Muslims, we need to practice our religion more consciously in the life, public life, more consciously. We don't have to be afraid of it. It's a balanced way of life. And I think if we could share the culture of influences coming from, say, overseas, I would say overseas, from other countries that have somewhat given definition to how we perceive the religion and get to the principles of the religion and practice the religion, learn it and practice it, and don't be afraid to live our life consciously and to practice our life consciously. We don't have to hide anymore and don't have to be intimidated by the misinformation that elements in the media perpetrate. Now, I said elements in the media because we have elements in the media that give beautiful definitions and correct definitions to Muslims. So I would encourage Muslims to be Muslim. That would be, and I think we, we're at a point now where much information, you can Google a lot and you can get confused on, on Google, but we know the foundational principles of our religion. We have lived in this country for a long time, and this country accommodates Muslims as well as Jews, as well as Buddhists, Hindu, and others. And if we would just learn our religion and practice it and don't be afraid, and at the same time look at the universality of our religion, not just the local thinking in our religion. And I think we kind of got it wrong in the beginning when we were given materials and books from overseas that were by thinkers who had lived a long time ago, and also the newer thinkers that may have been somewhat damaged in their psyche because of the wars, because of the different things that were happening in the Middle East. And I think that we have a chance in America. Many of us know know the Christian community. We know the Jewish community, but we know the Christian community better because many of us have Christian families. And we know that there are beautiful principles in the Christian religion, and I'm learning the Jewish religion also, that we don't have to be afraid to support and stand with the Christian community, but we need to live and practice our religion so people can get a better picture of what Islam and Muslims are really about. And so I think that's where we need to. We may have gotten it wrong. Now I think we can get it right. Sometimes I wonder what God thinks of us, and sometimes I can't help but feel a sense of despair as my friend and colleague was just talking about and intimating what human beings are capable of doing is sometimes so distressing that it just want to makes, wants to make me weep I have this vision that makes God wants to weep as well religion, and I don't want to go off too off center with this but religion within Judaism has its extremists just as in America and in different countries, different faiths as well, 
has extremists. Who gets the microphone? Right? Who, who gets the attention? If it's the person that screams the loudest, if it's the person that gives the greatest invectives, the, the worst sayings, that, that slanders and slams other peoples and nations, it's just hard. It's horrid. It's awful. I learned not too long ago the difference between response and reaction. I always thought they were the same thing, but they're not. A reaction is something that well, we just like do a knee-jerk thing. I mean, somebody calls us a name and we just want to punch the nose or somebody says something, we, we have a, re a negative reaction and we, we do things that are highly regrettable. Response is when you stop and you think, yeah, there were members of the Jewish faith who are not responsive, are not reactionary, are not responsive rather, but they are reactionary. And those are the people that do not deserve to hold the microphone. Those are the people that do not deserve to have the final say just because they shout louder. And I do, by the way, have this absolute and utter belief that if there were scales in the world, just go with me in this one, okay? If there were scales in the world and all the good people would be put on this scale and all the people of negativity would be put on this scale, right? The people of negativity would just like bounce way up to the sky. The good people far outweigh the negative ones. And we need to make sure that those are the people that we give the microphone to, that we pay attention to, that we heed their words, and that we, when we hear people who are pushing our buttons, that we not be reactive, but we be the people that respond thoughtfully, kindfully, and not feed the ugly beast. And then if I think about where believers, Christian believers have gotten it wrong and how would I deal with that, I, I think of those who have taken the God who created everything, who sent Christ in the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved, and they have made God in their own image and small enough to control so that, in a way, Christianity in their minds and in their writings and speaking, Christianity becomes collapsed into a nationalism, as if Christianity were, as if God were American. I think that's where they get it wrong, where we get it wrong. Christianity, when it becomes collapsed into partisan political categories, as if God were Republican or Democrat, that we need to rule that out of bounds. That when Christianity becomes a weapon to exclude, condemn, or subjugate the other side in Jesus' name, that in that way we get it wrong. And when Christianity is reduced from a relationship with God to a moral checklist or a voting record so that those who disagree with me or differ from me are not Christian because they're not like me, that that's how we get it wrong. And I would say, in answer to all of those, I would quote scripture from 1 John chapter 4. God is love, and those who abide in God abide in love, and God abides in them. And a little bit later in that same Lowell New Testament letter, those who say, I love God, but hate their brothers and sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or a sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from God is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. And I think the follow-up question, unless somebody else wants to say something, is what's the antidote to that false religion or negativity? And so since I asked that question, I go first? Okay. Um, I would say 
from my perspective, studying scriptures, and I like Omar's answer, be Christian from our tradition. Be Muslim. Be Jewish. Study the scriptures that are there. In my experience, it's not an easy read, and study of scripture needs help. But when I have seen when Christians put themselves in regular daily contact with the primary texts, then God begins to transform us. And I think that is the opportunity we have to have a real spiritual experience with God. In my experience, again, a real authentic experience with God always breeds humility and gratitude is when Luke makes holy, and it's always the list that I do well. Right? So worship have come to hear these. Well, I just want to add that I think we have all spoken to the antidote in terms of how we could. And the anti injury is then I had to put the hurt down and look at Christianity with uh, a pure mind, pure heart, pure spirit. And that's when I could, that's when I was able to see, again, the purity taught me when I was coming up, the purity of the Christian faith. And then when Islam was showing me that, then I had to go back and apologize to my mother because I said some things about Christianity today. <laughs> but as I found, yeah, I found out that, I found some help. That was a, a great abolitionist, Frederick Douglass, who was born a slave, and he, he escaped and got his freedom. And he became a, a great abolitionist, and he wrote his narratives, the narratives of Frederick Douglass. And he said that the Christianity that he was afraid of, I mean, that he was dealing with, that he put down so much, was not Jesus Christ's Christianity, it was the slaveholder's Christianity. And so that helped me tremendously. So when the Quran say people of the book, people of the book, then to be true to what my religion requires of us, I had to then trust God, go back with the clean, clean cleanness, or the clear-mindedness of my nature because I wasn't taught to hate people. And that, that, that helped me. So I think going back and, and then listening to the beautiful message now that come from the reverends and the ministers, I think if I had heard that beautiful message before I became Muslim, maybe I would still be in the Christian church. Probably a preacher, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I'm saying that to say that when you can deal with authenticity, not only of scripture, but also of people, then that helps a lot. So if we would live what we claim, be true to it, that's a great antidote. And you've made a Greek rabbi too, by the way. <laughs> if I can teach you a Hebrew word, this is Hebrew 101. Ready for it? The way you say truth in Hebrew, and I'd be very interested to see if there's a correlate in Arabic, the way you say truth in Hebrew is emet. Yeah, emet. And emet consists of the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the last letter, and the middle letter, incorporating everything. And again, emet meaning truth. And what is truth? What is truth? I mean, this is one of the things that I, I continually ask the children in the religious school, and I ask my adults as well when we study from adult education programs, what is truth? Can you tell me what's true? Tell me, name me one, maybe two, three things that are absolutely empirically true that nobody, nobody, nobody anywhere can possibly disagree with. And the fight to determine truth is one that we should 
have a lifelong endeavor and encounter with. The fight to determine what truth is. One of the books that I've, I, I never recommend anyone to read, but I always, rec- but I always seem to talk about, <laughs> is a book called Love. It was written by Robert Fulham, or Fulgham, I think you pronounce his name, when, when all you ever needed to know was in kindergarten or something like that. And um, in, in this book, Love, he, t- he gives like 20 different examples of love. And at e- the end of each chapter, he says, after he's shown what love is, he says, is this true? And you're, you're left at the end of the chapter scratching your head saying, I don't know, is, is that love? Is it not love? Is it true? Is it not true? And, and I think the fight to determine truth is something that is a never, it should be a never-ending battle for us all. And th- that's my... You know, the antidote, I think, for falseness is to continually question ourselves. Am I right? Am I correct with what I'm doing? Have, have I stepped on somebody's toes advertently or inadvertently? The story that uh, immediately comes to mind is one that I heard when I was in London training to be a rabbi. This guy gets into a taxi cab and he goes for a ride. And when, he, when the ride is over, the taxi cab says, well, that'll be five pounds or whatever. That'll be five pounds. So the guy gives him five pounds. And the taxi driver just looks at the guy, just stares at him. And so the guy looks at him back and says, isn't that right? He says, it may be right, but it's not correct. And, and I think that, that that's kind of the attitude that we all need to take with everything that we do. We should always self-examine, self-question, because without that, there is, where there is no growth, this is a quote from the Talmud, Where there is no growth, there is death. And we die a spiritual death when we're no longer growing. That brings to mind one, also a quote from a Christian reform pastor who was executed for participating in a plan to assassinate Hitler. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And and in that book, one of the things he says is, as long as we are in search of God and I would connect that with truth. As long as we're in search of God, we can question absolutely everything. Because if we understand that God is truth, as long as we're in the search for truth, we can question everything, including God. Because if God is truth, God doesn't have to be protected from that search, and we will end up back at God's feet. The danger is sitting down and settling for what you know and confusing that with all there is to know. But as long as we're in search of God and in search of truth, we can ask anything, because God is truth. Whose who's turn is it? There was a question that you mailed to us. I, I think that that question someone had submitted. Yes. Do you want to do that one? Yes. I'll read it and you start. Oh. This is a hard one. Oh. <laughs> the question, we asked for questions. We only got one sent in and it's this one. Being born again has different meanings within and among different Christian traditions. The author of The Heart of Christianity, which is a book, this comes from somebody in my congregation because they're studying that book, writes of the biblical term of being born again as a way of, quote, becoming conscious of and intentional about a deepening relationship with God. So born again is to become conscious and intentional about a deepening relationship with God. Is being born again a concept for Jewish and Muslim traditions? How do your traditions address a need to be born again? You want me to take it? Well, we don't. Okay, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) 
and Judaism, there really isn't a concept of being born again. And I think the closest thing that I could associate with the idea of being born again is the idea of repentance. You know, repentance, turning around. That we have, well, with, with every day with the exception of the Sabbath. Every, and every day in every prayer that we have, all the prayers that we have three times a day, there are always statements to the effect of, I have to find within myself the strength and the power to determine what I did wrong, repent and become better for it. And we devote an entire day of the year, which almost is an erasure from the calendar because we don't work, we don't drink, we don't eat for 24 hours, 25 hours. It's called the day of atonement, the, the day when we bring all of our detritus, all of our baggage to God, and we do, we do repentance. But it's not so much being born again as, in as much as just realizing where we've gone off the rails and then putting ourselves back on the rails, or maybe we're on the rail, maybe we're never on the right rails. It's changing track altogether, but doing that kind of repentance work. We don't have the concept of being born again, but we have the practice. It happens every ninth month. It's called Ramadan, fast of, the fast of the month of Ramadan. Ninth month. I think the baby comes in ninth, ninth month, right? So it's a new birth for us because we're giving ourselves to God. We're giving up, we're giving up eating and drinking during the day and sexual pleasures during the day with our spouses. We are focusing on God. We're emptying ourselves so that we can take in God's word through prayer, through reading the Quran, through thinking right, doing right, pushing ourselves from those elements in the media that bring us bad information. So we go to a sense of purity, purifying our spirit, purifying our intention, purifying our hearts and our minds. And when we come out of Ramadan, we have a new birth. That's the example of being born again. It's a new birth. We're more focused, more intentional, more committed to obey God in our lives and to live a better life. So that's, I guess, what we could tie in with that, being born again. Every year we get a new birth, like the baby being born into the world, offering a new chance. And I don't know if you haven't listened to the podcast on Ramadan. I told Omar if... I, I stood up and said, okay, y'all, we're not eating for, uh, during the day for how many days? Is it? 29, 29 days. days. Nobody's going to eat or drink any water. I'm not sure what would happen to my stewardship campaign. <laughs> how many members we'd have come back the next week. So it, it made me feel pretty, pretty pitiful when I thought and learned more. Well, you know uh, I'm drinking water now, yeah, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> It's just, a, it's just a pity how hangry I get when I try to fast for more than about 24 hours. It's just sad. I guess when I think about the question, which is very familiar language to me, being born again, I think the older I get that my faith is either about a living, breathing relationship with the God who made me, knows me, loves me, and claims me, that changes me from the inside out, or I need to do something else. Or it is about nothing at all. It is either about a relationship that allows me to love God, love myself, and love my neighbor. Or I should give it up. And I don't, we don't, I don't think we've got time to make this anymore about being a member of an institution. About checking off a moral list. 
making sure that we are as the most powerful and richest people are. It's either about me growing in my ability to love God, love myself, and love my neighbor, or it's not about anything. That's, I think, the born-again peace. It isn't a day. It isn't one event. It's a lifetime of work. When you're done, it's over. Hmm? When you're done, it's over, but really over. Like life, life is over. When you when you're done, yeah, there's nothing more. No more. No more. When change is no longer possible, life ceases to have meaning. Yeah. I've see, I think I have five more minutes. Is that right? We did have one last question. Do we want to do five? We have two. Which one do you want to do? We can only do one of them. Four or five. Last one. Okay. What did we learn? So the last question we had put together was what. Have you learned from each other over the course of the podcasts you've created? Who wants to start? Somebody holding the microphone. Okay. (laughs) What I have learned, I have learned that there is a lot that I do not know about Muslims and about Jews. I've also learned that we share a tremendous amount. We share a belief in one God who created all that is, who created the world and humankind, good and very good. I have learned that we share that God's intention for the creation and humankind is reconciliation and life and joy. I have learned that all three of our faiths struggle with and have been used to support fear, hate, and violence, and that all three of us want to stand against that use of our faith and with God's intention, what we believe God's intention to be. Um, I have learned that there's a lot we don't know about each other's faith. I've learned that Jonathan and Omar are men of integrity and compassion who seek truth and to love everybody that God has made. And I have learned that it is really hard for us to talk about what we're passionate about in 30 minutes or less. (laughs) I feel like Alvin and the Chipmunks now. (laughs) And ditto. To share, to, to be able to share issues that unite and divide us the issues that are of deep concern to our lives and to be able to discuss them in a way that I think, at least personally speaking, I have found just moments of utter enlightenment. I, there are times when we sat together and we did these podcasts and my eyes were just bulging out of my head. That, that I, these got, I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> We were always kind of, everybody's going for the mic. Y'all don't know how much editing I do out. I go, oh, 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 or, right? Where we all want to think of something to say. Right? Yeah. It's, the, be- the, the beauty of, of all of our struggles to, to try to meet one another under the ages of our traditions and under the ages of the banner of just being under God is something that defines who we are and if I can, I'm going to absolutely, utterly contradict what I said at the very outset. So just, if you want to throw something at me, go, go right ahead. You're entitled, okay? Oh, look at the time. <laughs> <laughs> we, we sit together and we laugh and we cry together and, and, and we go, ooh, and we go, ah, and we have these moments. I believe that God is laughing. I believe that God is taking such pleasure in his children that we're finding each other after being lost for such a long time. Yes. I was reading something that'll help me explain what I want to say. It says, I says, 
religious pluralism calls for active engagement with the religious other, not merely to tolerate, but to understand, but to understand. Tolerate does not require active engagement with the other. It makes no inroads on mutual ignorance. But to get to know each other, to talk with each other, to feel each other's spirit, I have been, I think, blessed with the, with the gift of feeling the spirit of the person. And it seems like, as I said before when I was talking, it seems like we go to a point of transparency. We just forget to a degree that we're Muslim, Christian, Jews, and we just enjoy each other. We go to a level of transparency. That's because we have developed a trust, and it comes from what I feel the authenticity of each one of my co-partners here, that they uh, are not just talking, they really mean it from the heart and they try to live it. That to me means very, very much. It, it means, it, it, it has touched my heart. And then when we discuss things, even though we may have differences, I'm able to go beyond that and look for the commonality. And I'm pushed beyond that to look for the commonality. Not to get hung up on the language, but to go to the essence of what's being said from the heart. That has been a tremendous blessing for me. Thank you for joining us for this live podcast of Abraham's Table. This podcast is a labor of love produced by Imam Omar Shahid, Rabbi Jonathan Case, and me. Other episodes of Abraham's Table podcast are available on Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, and you are invited to share this podcast with your friends and to send us your comments, your questions, topics you want us to address, we'll do our best. You can contact us using the email that's associated with the podcast. It is abrahamstablesc at gmail.com. abrahamstablesc for South Carolina at gmail.com. So from Columbia, South Carolina, we wish you God's peace. Shalom Aleichem. Peace in your heart. Assalamu alaikum. God's peace be upon you all. And now we get to eat.